Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by Brad Glesson, co-founder CEO of ThoughtBlocks, one of our network catalyst portfolio companies. Can you unpack what exactly is social capital, uh, how it works, and how communities can be best set up to, uh, networks can be best set up to encourage it? Yeah, the, I, I can talk for 50 years about social capital. Actually, as an undergraduate student, I was joining a biochemistry lab. And what got my attention, caught my eye about this lab was that I would be able to study how social capital is fostered and how it moves through networks of scientists and how like simply optimizing for better flow of social capital necessarily results in faster and better science. So what social capital is, it's basically by knowing a person, you now have access to that whole person's network. You have access to that whole person's information even. So if cultural capital is all the books they've ever read, all the podcasts they've ever listened to, their favorite restaurant locations, their favorite information, how to use chopsticks, how to freestyle, how to uh, shoot a free throw, all of that is cultural capital. And simply by knowing another person, you gain access to all of that cultural capital. You, you can That's necessarily how people learn things. Whereas social capital is is that same idea, but... By knowing another person, now I know all the people that they know. Or I don't necessarily know them, but by knowing a new person, I know that new person, I have access to that new person's network. If they see a question that I pose on Facebook, or if I tweet about something, if, if anything that they see that I ask, they can now triangulate in their mind, ooh, I know someone in my network who can help with that, boom. And so social capital is that embodied. What situations lead to sort of uh, the building of social capital? How is social capital built over time and how, how can communities be set up to encourage it? I think one of the the most like powerful ways to build social capital is to just meet people who are different than you. And I, I shared a few notes on this, but just to reemphasize um, the strength of weak ties was this paper by Mark Granovetter. And he's showed that like people who had like, for instance, company executives who have more diverse networks, they know volume-wise more people. And qualitatively, those people have differing job roles instead of the same job roles. Um, those who had both more people and those people had way different backgrounds and roles and experiences, they had the most success in their career. So there's been countless studies nowadays from sociology and economics and political science, which show how diversity and depth of social capital necessarily correlates with more personal success in, in the career. So the easiest way to do that is knowing more people. And after you just know people, like it, it doesn't do much good to um, collect a bunch of business cards or add a bunch of people on LinkedIn or just go to networking events for the sake of it, unless you're willing to do something with it. So the second part of how I would answer that question is know that it takes like 
60 seconds to two minutes to make an email introduction and just like kind of be able to scan Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, any, any, any tool that or platform that you use when someone asks something, be, be willing to do that. One, one of my friends posted on Facebook one day when we both lived in Georgia, he asked, Hey, does anyone know anyone who works for this design agency in Brooklyn, New York? And I was like, holy cow, I know someone who works for that design agency in Brooklyn, New York. Let me introduce the two of them. So I introduced them. It took 45 seconds to make that introduction on Facebook. The next thing you know, they set up an interview. They set up a meeting. My friend got the job. He moved to Brooklyn. He's been working for that company for three and a half years now. So because I met that guy in the dining hall our freshman year of college, we very much helped, helped one another, like, shift the trajectory of our career path. And stories like that happen countless times a day. So it's it's everything. And then on a more everyday approach, think about how we get recommendations for new books, for for new um, jobs, for new podcasts to listen to. It's reinforced and it's influenced from people in our social networks. So the reason I have certain tastes in music or Think I've read certain things or I've read certain articles or because friends forwarded that to me or friends just said, hey, you should listen to this. Or you should. So how we garner and gather individual tastes and preferences is so inextricably linked to our social capital, to our, like who is in our network. And if you know the structures, if you know more about the structures surrounding that ongoing, like forever exchange, you can necessarily tune it to your advantage. Village Global, for instance, is perfect at like being a magnet for social capital. Like what attracted us to your VC group is that we know that we're now like that much more connected. To, if we have a specific ask, one of someone in the network is really quick to make that connection. And and that how like precedented that is and like focused, you give the right like platform and action steps for that to happen, it can make or break a business in a lot of cases. It can it can make or break a career. It maybe not break, but it can it can provide opportunities for a company to just take off or for a person to get a job that's that forever shapes their 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 like worldview. Just simply knowing people. And more importantly, knowing people from different backgrounds and experiences. What's the intersection between social capital and reputation? Oh, that's a that's a great one. So Reputation, uh, social scientists have actually kind of given a formal name to that in a sense. They, they call it like reputation is, is, is very much like symbolic capital or like symbolic power even. So someone with really good reputation is going to get organic, like people are going to just organically enter, like for instance, Twitter. So someone with high reputation is going to get Twitter followers or get Instagram followers without having to meet those people in the real world. Therefore, when that person with high reputation posts something on one of those networks and someone who's followed them sees it, the person who's followed who sees it can send back something of value. Ooh, I saw you ask this question on Twitter. Here's someone I know who can solve that problem. Or, hey, I saw you posted this on Instagram. Here's what I think about that. So having more of a reputation, it sort of gives you like a passive flow and flux of incoming social capital that 
you just get based on your reputation. So there, there's better, there's a huge utility to, to having a reputation if you're good at like kind of using that to your advantage and curating opportunities to crowdsource or like get, get more social capital out of it. And uh, when you, when you talk about great reputations, what do you think are the, are the uh, Oxum's razor characteristics that, that lead to great reputations? Sure. So I think people get reputation when they say or do things that are valuable to other people. So artists get better reputation when they do something that's critically well-received. So that's, that's one way to, and, and so like that critics social proof of, Hey, that's a really good album. You all should listen to that. It's going to garner more symbolic power. It's going to garner more social capital for that artist. And the, the other, the other end of that is, just if just consumers directly like it, like no reviews necessary. If someone introduces a new product or a new idea or a new piece of art that is just really useful or enjoyable, they, they both mutually help help one another. And like understanding how those interplay can can be a real advantage to people. Yeah, the thing I would add is you know both like value and values. So value is like, yeah, what, what skills or value are bringing to other people and values is, I, I think a lot on consistency, like just, uh, being like no friction to people introducing you or, or just your, your name coming up. Um, and then like e- you, even if you could be like consistently inconsistent, like that's part of your, I mean, repetition is another way of saying brand, right. But like if people can get a read on you in sort of an easy way, then there's little friction in introducing you and bringing you, et cetera. I, I love that apposition value and values very much like what you just said. I think values are how things get signaled. Like you have a value, you're an investor who values innovative company growth. I'm someone trying to grow an innovative company. And like our, our values for the power of networks is literally how we know each other now. So values now open up the opportunity for us to help each other build value. Totally. And there's this, you know, there's this episode of, of Black Mirror. It's a bit dystopian where you're sort of, it's like a Yelp for people. I don't, have you seen this episode? I, I, that's a good episode. Do you, uh, yeah, so basically your actions are, you know, China's like rumored to be doing some of this thing where they have like so, sort of a social credit score based on people's interactions with you and and some, you know, some parts of dystopian and that you're, you're rated at every single thing ever and um, all sorts of prisoners dilemmas games inherent in that. But so I have a sort of broad question. Do you think something like that, even if a much lesser version will exist at some point where, or if not soon, where reputation or social capital is codified in some way? Cause right now it's not, it's not re- I mean, maybe Twitter does or other social networks a little bit, but um, there's a lot of information that's in people's heads. That's not online about what people think about others. Yeah, I, I think it's it's already happening. And how granular or how like commodified we, we choose to do with it is just gonna be a, a marketplace of values and interactions. It it could it could on one extreme get as bad as portrayed in that Black Mirror episode where you're ranking everything. And I don't think it'll be like a physical interaction. It'll be like semantic like you you'll be able to interface with it even more seamlessly in 75 years but what's happening right now like today is people frankly do have more eyes on them if they will they they have more for good or bad so uh, let's start with a good example 
things go viral on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram all the time when an ordinary person does something of heroic character or does something really nice for someone. People record that on their mobile phone and they upload it to Instagram and it goes viral. And that ordinary person has now been catapulted into a much better space for doing something. So that that's a rating. That's a, someone gave that person a five star rating and said, this is not just a five star thing that they did well. Let's let other people know about it. And that mimetic exposure to good things happening can have very positive ripple effects to like how people treat one another. Like they, they want to be seen as a nice person too. So maybe they'll start being nice to people on the off chance that people are watching them and give them a good review. And it can happen in a, and another sort of like grimmer yet good example is like the me too movement. So like 20 years ago, Bill, like all Bill Cosby and all these other bad actors who were, sort of taking advantage of, of women and, and others are getting away with that because that, that five-star ranking system just hasn't manifest yet in the form of Twitter or in the form of anonymous reporting or in the form of general web 2.0 that you get knowledge about this stuff going out. So that's a way of like negative reinforcement that can also positively influence social norms for the better. What would really suck or would really be bad though is, is if like, people feel so under the microscope that they're not willing to like take any risk or do anything creative or new or, or like be, be, because they're, they're worried about a negative ranking poorly influencing their, their, their reputation. So back to your question, there will be more platforms that you can kind of like shoot from the hip, your review of someone on something like that. I'll, I'll yelp, yelp for X basically. And that that's that's like inevitable. How quickly people adopt that is going to be like how extra or how actually useful is that? Like how how superfluous is an entire platform and ecosystem around rating something trivial? Or how 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 needed was that 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 now we can um, qualify the value of something and let people know going in how, how they should expect an experience. We've been talking a lot about reputation, social capital. So the question is, how do you think about, you know, identity, but also anonymity, you know, being anonymous and sort of, you know, the future, maybe you imagine decentralized identity, but with the intersection of that and just building positive communities in general. Sure. So the internet gives so many ways for you to adopt an anonymous persona and either build value or cause destruction. And the, the good sides of being anonymous in a web ecosystem is that there's less hesitation to help people out because your name is not tied to it. On Quora, when someone asks about what is it like to recover from meth addiction and someone anonymous answers and tells some triumphant story of how they got out of it, that's a really good use of being anonymous that if their name was attached to that, that information would have never manifest. So it, it can be very good and it can be also used for bullying. Um, Yik Yak was a mobile app where mostly used by teenagers and young people where unfortunately a lot of like bullying and hate speech came about that it was just so stressful and like hard to scale beyond those, those systems and kind of break free of that path dependency 
that it, it ultimately shut down or, or wasn't able to grow much further. And so like being, being anonymous can also lead to new forms of bad acting. Now, identity is another thing. Like some, some people leverage the internet, leverage social capital to like boost, boost their identity. And that can be like in a, in a vain way, like, you know, it's kind of like vanity metrics, but for personality or vanity metrics for human value. When, when you're in this like Instagram ecosystem and you're trying to get followers based on how you look, for instance, versus like, what are you doing for people to help them? And there, there's a great amount of people on Instagram who build up a reputation based around awesome things that they're making and helping people do. And, and they're using a visual platform to kind of spread that message. And then there's a huge portion of Instagram that's people buying into like, oh, how, how good does this person look? How good does this person look? And, and sort of their, their identity is now morphed with how many likes they get on a photo or how many followers they have. And you hear grown people, you hear teenagers talking about that identity that they have on social media as, as being real to them. And with, with the trained ear, you can sort of hear when they're, when they're using it mostly to garner and absorb like good, like informationally rich or like story type things versus just surface level identity. I actually was able to, uh, my senior year of college, like after I had added sociology as a, a major, I was able to do a research project where we interviewed 350 college and high school students about what social media platforms they used. And more importantly, like, what are you creating on them? And what are you uploading? And what are you taking from them? And so the, the, pe- and the, the people who used the networks to more heavily like, process information, absorb a story, share a story, share an idea, had on average way more diversity of career aspirations way more diversity of role models that they had and way more diversity of problems that they saw in the world as needing to be fixed. People who used the social media platforms mostly to look at photos of one another, of just their like physical appearance, that's like what they stated that they used them mostly for. They had way narrower career aspirations, a way narrower array of role models and a way narrower array of problems that they saw needing to be fixed in the world. So that like is a, an example. It, it's not like a direct correlation, but it, well, that is an example of if you, it makes sense though. Like if you just compound like how, like for every minute that is used up on an individual person's lifespan, they're downloading information when they're awake or they're uploading it. And when they're downloading information, that's more concerned with like physical appearances um, and their identity is more shaped around that versus people whose identity is more shaped around like deeds or actions or like how they're helping one another in this collective like multiplayer building game. You you can kind of get a you 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 know why people will have more diverse problems that they want to see fixed in the world or different career ambitions that are beyond a very narrow predictable predictable career array. We have about uh, 10 minutes or so, so I want to close on some of the most important parts to you. So one, uh, high-level questions. One is, what are some of the principles of what makes great communities, separates great communities from communities that aren't great? What separates great networks from networks that, that aren't great? And then perhaps non-obvious things you've learned, you're studying and building 
communities and networks that people who are trying to listeners who are trying to do that can learn. Awesome. So, I mean, th- this is what I plan to spend a career doing. What makes a community great versus mediocre? I think we're at an inflection point today in our socio-technical or interactions with one another where a, in an okay community is like an affiliation of people. They, they're, they join some email list. They join some group. They go to like one, one meetup a quarter or one conference a year. And there's an affiliation, but there's not the, the effect is stifled by something. The, 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 the power of that community could be better if there was a way for individuals to contribute knowledge, contribute resources, contribute social capital in a more efficient and nuanced manner. But where there's absence of great context around shared resources, there's noise. And so great communities are able to provide infrastructure and user experience for individual members to help one another without spamming everyone. And mediocre communities are just an affiliation and whatever form of communication they take, you, you might get this water fountain of text and information and things swelling, but it's neither retrievable or targeted enough or noise-free enough to actually scale efficiently and help the community grow as powerfully as it could. And the, the same can apply for a network. So again, the, the, the number one thing that we can do to turn a mediocre network into a great network is to stop thinking about how can I help someone, me personally, with my skills, help someone. Start thinking more of how can anyone in my network help you? So if, if we train ourselves to just like think like on a dime, someone asks a question, it's not about how can I help that or not help that. That, le- that leads to a lot of like, static interaction or indifference. What I, I see as the future of networks is when someone asks, hey, can anyone help with this? The, the person who sees that call to action is less of like, hey, can I help that? And they're more of, hey, my friend, my friend can. And, and if, when that becomes more reflexive and just more of an everyday thing, you're gonna, we're going to see so much better network connectivity and positive leveraging of social capital. Totally. What do you think are the most non-obvious, interesting thoughts you have on communities or networks? Or Sure. So I think that communities should be more than just an affiliation of people who rally around together around some common interest. And they should be more of a collection of people trying to advance their own personal enrichment and the enrichment of the group's common goal. And an overwhelming factor in that is how efficiently information can surface and how infor- and how information can be found and how durable is it and how scalable is it and how noise-free is it and how much of a shelf life does it have. So what ThoughtBlocks is doing is it's providing a space where no matter the amount of information that a group has to share, it won't reach some threshold where adding more adds more noise. Or no matter how many people are in a group, they don't feel blocked by sharing a useful piece of knowledge that might span people. They just quickly share that knowledge and they tag it accordingly with the proper group categories so that people looking for that type of information always know how to find it. 
what's relevant to a lot of the listeners of this podcast, people growing companies, is that if knowledge is an asset to your company that otherwise would have been lost somewhere or buried somewhere, you're able to save time, you're able to move faster, you're able to accomplish more complex goals. The magic of ThoughtBlocks is that it makes finding and sharing information way more intuitive. You don't have to chase down just one singular pathway of knowledge discovery. You just snap your fingers and information of a certain topic or two or three topics will just show up to you right away. So that that's more organic than like scratching your head for very particular keywords or entering one of five possible channels or folders where this type of information could live. You're able to just summon it based, based on topics of interest or categories and the groups make the category. The company makes categories or the community makes categories that can be layered onto a piece of content and then used as filters later versus having to live in one folder, one channel, one bucket. And the the implications are just pure scalability of knowledge growth and retrieval. So our mission is to empower companies and communities to grow insights and ideas that are actually findable. Awesome. Brad, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. It's been a great episode. If uh, you want to learn more about uh, ThoughtBlocks and Brad, you can go to ThoughtBlocks.com, uh, ThoughtBlocks with a X at the end, um, and, and then Brad uh, BradGlesson.com to learn more about uh, Brad's work. Brad, thanks so much for coming to the podcast. Eric, thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.